KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. I could have lived without that line. The, the episode would have lived without that line. But I knew that if I lost that, the next silly battle would be easier to lose. Television icon Norman Lear wrote sitcoms that tackled real issues, rape, abortion, race relations. When the network wanted him to drop a potentially controversial line, he just said no. This week we revisit a conversation with Lear, who passed away December 5th at 101 years old. He talked about a few lifetimes worth of adventures in film and television, and his 2014 memoir, Even This I Get to Experience. We'll listen to the words and wisdom of Norman Lear, but... First, we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So SAG-AFTRA members voted to ratify the settlement with the studios. They have a new three-year deal, which, well, two and a half years because it took so long to get there, which they have said is a billion-dollar historic deal. As you well know, the issue that was causing the most chatter was AI and did the Guild go far enough to get what was needed to protect actors from this new and rapidly developing technology. Notwithstanding that back and forth, which was seemingly robust, they almost got 80% to vote in favor of it. I'll mention that I'm a SAG-AFTRA member in a different unit and I could have but did not vote because I'm not taking part in that stuff as a reporter. But close to 80% I think was pretty good, huh? Yeah, and it's about what was expected. You know, I thought it would be between 75 and 85 and, you know, slightly lower than you might have seen if this were a uh, agreement that did not have some pretty well-organized opposition to it. You saw a lot of social media activity. You saw people like Justine Bateman and Matthew Modine out there saying, you know, this is going to open a door for the studios on AI. They're going to run right through it and we're going to really regret this. But... When push comes to shove, actors want to work, and 78% of them said, this is good enough. It wasn't the very ringing endorsement that the Writers Guild got, but it's done, and the industry is quickly moving forward. And, you know, Matt, you and I are going out to events again and uh, seeing actors promote their films. Absolutely, and production. I mean, I feel like production is really ramped up. I mean, everyone's trying to get stuff done before the holiday break, whatever they can do, and then... In January, I think we'll be back up to pretty much full speed. Yeah, so a relief that apparently cost about $6 billion worth of impact from what I've read uh, to the economy more broadly here, but done is done and that's good. Ted Sarandos was speaking in the past few days, and he was, of course, crowing about the success of Suits, which has been an insane phenomenon on uh, Netflix, a show that was several years old and originally aired on the USA Network. And he predicted that we're going to see a lot of lawyer shows now. I would say we have always seen a lot of lawyer shows, but maybe yeah, we Yeah, that's will. a pretty tried and true <laughs> genre on television. Yeah. Someone should introduce him to Law and & Order. All the different Law & Orders, yeah. He also said that people licensing shows to Netflix is good for them. Now, you remember in the beginning, Netflix came on so strong because so many studios had this old stuff lying around in their vaults, which they had pretty much milked for what they were worth and thought, hey, what a deal for us. We're going to give this to Netflix and get some more money out of these things. 
oops, turns out Netflix became the thing that ate Hollywood. And studios said, okay, we're not doing that anymore. But now in these difficult times, the studios are starting to do this again. And Ted Sarandos says, look, we're great for these properties. I look at Cobra Kai. It was a YouTube original and it was canceled. And then it came to Netflix and it became a huge thing. And now Sony is going to make a Cobra Kai movie because this piece of intellectual property is valuable again. And it looks like the studios may be buying that argument. Well, a lot of them don't have a choice. I mean, if you look at a company like Warner Discovery, they created their own service with Max and they are trying to pump that up. But they also have financial realities where they need to make money on this stuff. And David Zaslav at Warner's has just said, license it all. If it's not The Sopranos, then we're open for business. We can license our content out. And we're back to the early 2010s all over again, which is kind of funny because Sarandos has an interest in saying, look at all the value we're creating. He knows that these companies are all in a tough spot. They're all under pressure to be profitable. Netflix is the only streaming service that is consistently profitable. And they have an amazing platform that can add value to some of these properties. I mean, NBC Universal is going to be able to do more with the Suits property now that it's become a giant thing on Netflix. So, you know, I think he's right in saying that they can add value there, but it's obviously self-interested because he knows that Netflix benefits immensely if all of these other legacy studios have to sell them product. Meanwhile, Mike Cavanaugh, the president of NBC Universal, was speaking about the sale of Hulu to Disney, which is now underway. Disney is taking total control of Hulu. They got the first payment, $8 billion, and Mike Cavanaugh said the check cleared. So I'm sure that was a relief to NBC Universal shareholders. And Hulu is now a tile on Disney Plus. So, Matt, as someone who I undoubtedly has both Hulu and Disney Plus, you might want to be setting the parental controls on that Hulu tile because you have a little kid in the house. It's funny. I did get the prompt to set my parental controls. Of course, <laughs> I clicked right through it. So who knows what my kid might end up watching. But uh, hopefully it's not Pam and Tommy. But this is the next year or two in streaming, I think, is the great rebundling or the effort by the streamers to reduce churn by packaging things up. And that can take a lot of different forms. I mean, obviously, Disney is trying to better integrate Hulu into the Disney Plus interface in the U.S. They already do this with Star overseas. And there's going to be some other things. You know, we, are, we just saw this past week that Verizon is now going to bundle or offer as a bundle the ad tiers of Netflix and Max together for $10, which is a 40% discount. That's a different type of bundling, but it's another way for these streaming services to gain subscribers, gain traction, and also have Verizon essentially subsidize the offering here to keep people in their universe. And that's a, a tried and true strategy for gaining subscribers. If you look back to the launch of Disney+, Plus, they got a huge benefit from Verizon offering Disney+, Plus basically for free. So the bundling here is advantageous to everybody. Unless you don't want to watch ads, because it's all pushing people toward the ad-supported tier. And I will also say that the simplicity that many people yearn for about what is the best deal for me, where can I get the most for my dollar, we're far away from that. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. 
those were the days. When Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton invaded America's living rooms as the bigoted Archie Bunker and his sainted wife Edith, television was changed forever. All in the Family, which ran on CBS during the tumultuous 1970s, dealt with gritty issues, smashing the mold of fluffy sitcoms like Petticoat Junction and Green Acres. It was TV's number one show for five consecutive seasons. With his partner, Bud Yorkin, Norman Lear produced that show and many others, including Maud, One Day at a Time, Good Times, and The Jeffersons. Lear spoke to us in November 2014 to talk about his memoir, Even This I Get to Experience. The book is a journey through Lear's life and a look at Hollywood history through the eyes of a legend who worked with legends, including Danny Thomas, Frank Sinatra, Mel Brooks, and Carl Reiner. When Lear joined us in the studio, we started out with a little reminiscing about the last time we'd met. You know, I was actually looking back at the piece I wrote about you for The Hollywood Reporter. Yes. When I asked Rob Reiner about you, he said you had balls the size of Montana. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm (laughs) fact-checking. Are are we on the air? Yeah, we're rolling. Oh, and you're saying balls? I'm saying balls on public radio air. Well, crying out loud. (laughs) Well, he's right. And I mean, I walked in uh, and I left them in the uh, in the car. <laughs> okay. So uh, there's a lot of gambling in your story, right? And as you go through life, you're pretty gutsy about gambling. Well, in business, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I guess like, you could call it gambling. I think of it more as conviction that is a gamble to others. On a couple of occasions, and starting, I guess, with All in the Family, or maybe before, Uh you wanted your cut, your version of the script, and you basically said, if you don't do it my way, I'm walking out of here. And you're saying it's a matter of conviction, not gambling. Much more conviction. It turns out to be a gamble. Life is a gamble. You know, you get up every morning, you're gambling, you're going to be there tonight to sleep and wake up the next morning. Right. Also, it sounds like, as you describe it, I won big wars. Yeah. But it wasn't the way it felt. The way it felt at the time was the network was being silly, ridiculous, or some network executive reporting to an executive above him who was reporting to somebody above him who was reporting to somebody in New York. Right. That's the hierarchy and the way it worked was making a silly decision. In the first episode of All in the Family, when Archie comes in from church having left the sermon because he was pissed off at the reverend and the, and the sermon itself, the kids having the house alone, Mike and Gloria, they have decided to make love, and they rush downstairs when they hear the door close. Archie knows what, you know, guesses what they were up to, and he says, 11.10 of a Sunday morning. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're early. (laughs) So are you. We're just going to go sit down over there. Yeah, I'll bet. 11.10 of a Sunday morning. They wanted that out. Why? Because it it was specific. It pointed to the fact that they were going to make love. Married couple. Well, and that's what I said. Married couple. They were going to make love. 11.10, it had to come out. And I could have lived without that line. The, the episode would have lived without that line. But I knew that if I lost that, the next silly battle would be easier to lose and the ones that followed from that. So I had to say there will be no show 
if you take that out. But you have to mean it. If you say, I'm going to walk, you have to, you can't bluff. Well, I did mean it. I did mean it. When you did, I mean, you did all in the family initially. I think you were doing it for ABC and they kept balking. They yes. were scared of it. Yeah. And you, they wanted you to redo it and you left the script exactly they, the, the same. The way the contract was written, they could cause me to uh, do it again. Right. Uh, and that would allow them to hold it for a year. And they did that. And so I made it a second time for them. Different young people. Same Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton were there from the beginning. And it's my good fortune that it took three times to do it because by then I ran into Sally Struthers. I hadn't known of her before. And Rob Reiner was now old enough, I thought, to play the role. And you knew him since he was a little boy. I did. Yeah, because he was obviously the son of Carl Reiner and you were friends. Yeah, we were great friends. So you had the cast, and you did it the same way every time. You didn't think, maybe I should make it a little different at all. Just, I like it this way. This is the way it's going to be. Well, there was no story at all, really. It was their anniversary. The kids were doing a brunch for them. Mike had picked up a little gift for them. That was the entire story, so that I could write 360 degrees, what I call the 360 degrees of Archie Bunker. You'd hear the kind of things he might say at any time. I used to say to the network, we got to get wet together. We jump <laughs> into the pool and we get wet. You're never wetter than wet. Right. And this script was designed, designed to do that. So that's why I stuck with it. Of all the people you've worked with, I think you talk about Carol O'Connor as the most difficult, challenging every script. Mm -hmm. What is the cause of that, do you think? Just fear, pure fear? I think it was a couple of things. I think certainly fear. You know, we were reaching 50 million people a week. That's a lot of and people. And he was it. Yeah. And he was playing the role he was playing. So he didn't like a lot of the things he was asked to do. Not not because he was uh, he wouldn't say those things, but because he disagreed about the story. One of the halcyon moments was uh, we did a show where uh, he was in an elevator with four other people. The elevator got stuck, and one of the people in the elevator was a woman who was due to have a baby in two weeks. She panicked. The baby is born, and he thought, Cramped in an elevator, but there's no way to do a show. Was, the other relationships, everything was wrong. And then at the end, a baby was born. And may, I don't know, I can't explain it. He wouldn't do it. And I was too much in love with the notion of a camera on his face while the first sounds of a baby's life were heard. Yeah. Ain't it supposed to cry or nothing? That sounds kosher. You know, after a lot of uh, storm and drung, we did the show, and it was it was glorious. And the first one to understand that it was wonderful was Carol O'Connor. And and did he ever come back and say you were right? No, but when he passed, uh, and I went to the home to see Nancy, she asked me to wait till everybody had left. And when we were alone, she unlocked the door to his study. And his desk was clean, but for one piece of paper, it was a letter I'd written him four years before, in which I told him how much I loved him and how grateful I was for him and I, how much I regretted we had these 
arguments all the time. And uh, it was on that desk she told me every day all those years. And uh, we loved each other and still fought. Yeah, it's just one of those relationships, I guess. And yeah. a talent like that is frequently not an easy person, right? Not an easy person. And, I, you know, I wrote a character. He inhabited it. There'd be no Archie Bunker just because I wrote him. Right, of course. He was you perfect. Know, so. He was perfect for that. So looking back to when you grew up, you described very engagingly in the book this childhood you had. And your dad ended up going to prison because he basically was a guy who failed in a lot of businesses and was kind of a con. Right? Mm-hmm. And this was a painful thing. And I think you've said in interviews that confronting this in this book was something you weren't that thrilled about having to do. Well, I wasn't thrilled, but I knew I had to do it. I couldn't write the story without writing the truth, and that was my truth. It also framed or bended my character, whatever my character is. Uh, It was shaped in those years. What do you think the impact was? The impact was I wanted to at once run as far from the character as I could and hold on to him for dear life because I loved him. You know, I wonder a little bit going forward as you got into show business, you weren't above a little bit of a con yourself. You kind of conned your way into Danny Thomas's notice. <laughs> Conned, you would say? Well, you I posed. called him and told him I had something he could do quickly for the Friars Frolic the next day. But did you not get his number by proposing as a New York oh, Times Oh, I did, reporter? I did, I did. Yeah, no. I called his uh, agent's office at the noon hour, hoping the agent would be <laughs> at lunch, and he was. And I said as quickly as I could, I said to his secretary, I'm, I'm uh, uh, Merle Robinson, that's the name I used. Uh, Merle Robinson? Because <laughs> I love the name. Uh, and with the New York Times, I just uh, spent a couple of days with Danny Thomas. I'm doing a story on him at the airport now. I'm, gonna pl- I'm flying to New York. I'm going to write the story on the, and I have a couple of questions. Oh, they're calling my uh, plane. <laughs> she gave me his number. Okay. <laughs> He was fascinated with how I got his number. So that worked for you. So you he confessed. Thought, well, that's a you funny confessed. guy. Maybe this, so he said, get over here right away with the material. I said, it's, it couldn't get over for about four hours. He said, you said you were in Hollywood. I'm in Beverly Hills. But I hadn't written this thing yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so maybe you learned a little something that was useful at the knee of the... The old man, the yeah, old father. I, I, I learned <laughs> a little bit you of got, a hustle. You got to blow your own horn. Coming up after the break, Norman Lear was already dismayed over the state of network television back in 2014, but he hadn't given up completely. You're listening to the business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. 
Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. We're revisiting our conversation with the late Norman Lear, the man behind culture-shifting TV shows like All in the Family, Maud, Good Times, and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, among others. Lear's 2014 memoir is called Even This I Get to Experience, and he's certainly experienced a lot in his 101 years. In addition to his decades of work in television, Lear was a longtime activist and advocate for progressive causes. He founded People for the American Way in 1981. Ten years earlier, when All in the Family started on CBS, Lear didn't see himself as someone sending a message. He was simply looking to entertain. But then his perspective started to shift. We were accused of it in a harsh way. I mean, what I heard most of all was at the beginning, if you want to send a message, there's Western Union. Right. You don't use television to send a message. But a couple of years into it, I realized two things. One... We were serious people. I was a serious person. I collected serious people around me. We were writing about what we felt about the times, using the subjects that touched us as family members. And that reflected a point of view. I understood that. Then when I thought back to the shows that preceded us, the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and those shows, I realized they were presenting American families where the biggest problem might have been that the roast was ruined and the boss is coming to dinner. Or mother dented the car, how do we keep dad from finding out until she gets it fixed? Or, yes, these little trivial that, things. If that didn't send wall-to-wall floor-to-ceiling messages, I don't know what did. I mean, <laughs> there were no problems in the American family. You know, there was no rape, there was no illness, there was no economic problems. Everybody was having a glorious time uh, unless the roast was ruined. Right. So I thought, well, that's, that's a heavy message. America has no problems at all. And I thought what we were doing is light message-wise compared to that. We had Neil Bear. I don't. You know, I know you know a lot of people. Oh yeah, I know Neil Bear. Okay, you know a lot of people. Of yeah. So Neil Bear, who worked on ER for many years, was on the show recently, right. actually talking about this, his decision to come out uh, yeah. as a gay person, and he said in those days he could do things about really serious. You know, he had one of the first HIV positive people right. on the air. He doesn't think you can do that on prime time anymore. He thinks there's been a kind of a reaction away from it. And I don't know how much TV you watch now. I know you watch certain shows, yeah. but I don't know that you're watching network. I'm not watching a great deal. No. You- and I understand from people who are showrunners that, uh, like I think you were going to say about Neil, they don't think All in the Family would could exist today, wouldn't get on the air today. And the subject matters we touched on wouldn't work today. They just wouldn't allow it. So, and I imagine that's what Neil was saying. Yes, that's yeah, what he was. It's, it's a strange dual universe where you have this vibrant cable world with a show like Transparent, which you were a fan of, right? With, with this oh, on, my God, yes. On uh, Amazon. It's not even on television, right. television. And at the same time, we have this kind of conservative broadcast network environment. What, right. Why would that be? I mean, the broadcast networks because are still the big we, tent. Uh, we are a culture that looks itself in the mirror and doesn't see itself honestly. And we've become a nation of consumers, and it's all about selling. 
It's not about being real. It's not about reflecting truth. It's all about selling. Your show, I mean, in the day, the, the shows on the networks reached more than 120 million people a week. That's an enormous, it's so different now. So when you look at the revolution in this business where you can't reach millions of people at, at, on the scale that you did, but you mm. can do a show like Transparent on Amazon, uh, is it better now or is it worse? You know, I'd have settled all those years ago for for uh, a, a law or a rule that made television available 12 hours a day and not 24 hours and 24-7 and... It's too, it's too much. I don't know what should be done about it, but, you know, walk into a restaurant and see a family of five, three people on their cell phones. It's awful, know? yeah. And, and some of them watching something, you know, kids in a family not talking, relating, but watching a show or a, playing a game or whatever. It would be all right if we, if we talked about it and wondered out loud where we're heading, what we're doing. We might change attitudes. We might see things differently, but we're confined to bumper sticker conversations, you know, and people yelling at each other. That's right. how we get the news. No mm -hmm. context. Right. Very reductive kind of uh, news sometimes. Excuse for news, I should say. Yes. Uh, so you've seen these revolutions. You went from radio to the birth of television, the VCR, all of that. I don't know. Do you come away? Do you say, okay, there's this internet and it's it's invaded our lives to the point where it's disrupting the dinner table? And do you feel discouraged by that, or do you think we learn how to handle this thing, this digital monster? Uh, I'm I'm concerned with uh, real problems and where they could end up. Climate change, I think, is very real. One, yeah. I worry about I worry about that. But I I don't want to wake up any morning I'm without hope. So. Uh, I won't. Uh, you so decline. I, I'm hopeful. I don't know. I don't know how we get through, but we'll get through. And uh, given how many planets there are, a billion among uh, in a, in universes of which there may be a billion, uh, how do we know how many other peoples like us vanished mm. over the centuries? Right. You know how far they came and how how quickly in, in nature's timeline they vanished. And let me just, at the end of your book, you write, I, as I report on myself in these pages, what surprises and pleases me most is the consistency in my life. What does that mean? It means I've always basically, you know, there was a hurricane when I was 11 years old and living with my, uh, with my grandparents and I was at Woodmont, Connecticut on the beach for the summer, and everybody lost their clothespins. And uh, <laughs> I went into New Haven uh, with two pillowcases. I feel pillow like I can see this coming, yeah. <laughs> with two pillowcases, and uh, there was a clothespin factory, and I filled up the, and it sold clothespins, three for a dime or a nickel or whatever the hell it was. So, you know, that that dogged, personality or persistence or whatever. That's been consistent. Fairness. When I learned at age nine, listening to Father Coughlin, that people hated me or at least disliked me or didn't want me because I was Jewish, 
Despite a First Amendment and a Bill of Rights and uh, guarantees for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that became, that's been a steady in my life. So when I realized that black people had it far worse than others uh, and other minorities and disabled and so forth, just basic, you know, I can't say fairness without saying American. Basic American fairness. And uh, where it doesn't exist, as it didn't, I thought, when uh, the evangelicals began to proliferate on television, didn't seem fair at all to me. And uh, those are the through lines in my life, a number of those, and that's what I mean. I'm, I'm proud of that consistency. You're commonly referred to as an icon. How weird is that? That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> that is truly weird. Norman Lear is a writer, director, <laughs> advocate, and a force behind TV shows like All in the Family, Sanford and Son, One Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, Good Times, and Maud. His memoir, Even This I Get to Experience, is available now. Thank you for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And that's the business. Caitlin Parker and Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Katie Gilchrist and John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream the business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. This is KCRW, and you're listening during the season of Giving Back. It's an excellent time to make a tax-deductible donation. Thank you for spending your year with KCRW and for your support. If you're able, please consider making an end-of-year donation to keep KCRW a part of your life in 2024. Do it for your taxes. Do it for the holidays. Do it for KCRW's place in your daily life. Go to kcrw.com give, and thank you. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.